0: Right now, we have been talking about in the meantime. We started this series a week ago, and in the meantime, we are in a pandemic. So a lot of us are stuck at home, working from home, or doing school from home, and the question might come up, what are we supposed to do with all this time on our hands? A lot of us even view life this way, as if between now and meeting God in the world to come is just this long meantime. What is this all even here for? What are we supposed to do with it? So last week we started talking about life isn't canceled. In the meantime, creation isn't canceled. God hasn't given up on his world and his plan for our lives. This is not just a long wasted vacation between birth and heaven. God is wanting to do something with this mean time to transform us into the likeness of Christ so that when he reunites heaven and earth, this great restoration of all things, we will be part of bringing that in and be prepared to be part of it. Next week, we're going to talk about, in the meantime, tell the story. And we will release a bunch of homepoint materials for a new campaign that helps us to share our faith with people in our home or with our friends and our co-workers. And maybe you feel the way I do when I hear someone talking about sharing faith, evangelism, telling the story. It often sounds very complicated and maybe even like something I'm not sure I want to do. So today we're going to talk about a fundamental that can help us by practicing it to be prepared for moments when we tell the story. In the meantime, focus on the fundamentals. Well, let me use a sports analogy. I'm not a big fan of using sports analogies in sermons, but today I think this one fits. There is a play in baseball that is very rare. And very high risk and very high reward. It is hard to pull off. It's called a suicide squeeze. There are so many things that have to come together just right to pull off a suicide squeeze. The goal is to get the runner across the plate and score a run, which is always the goal in baseball. But you've already have, have to have a runner on third base and a batter who's up to bat that you trust to be able to bunt the ball onto the grass so that the runner can score, run across the plate without being thrown out, and this all happens super fast. The runner leaves third base before the pitch leaves the pitcher's hand. He has to trust the batter, and the batter has to have all these skills that he's acquired over time. Like taking a round bat to bunt a round ball that's coming at him at 90 or 95 miles an hour maybe straight or maybe curving and he needs to to bunt that ball kind of slap it down onto the grass where it rolls just the right distance between the pitcher and the catcher so his teammate can score it's an extremely complicated high energy high risk high reward play and i think maybe this is the way a lot of us feel when we hear the word evangelism or tell the story or share your faith or any any words that sound like that i think a lot of us Uh, soup this idea of evangelism up way too much and hype it up way too much where we start thinking the eternal destiny of this soul that's across the counter from me, the barista at Starbucks or whatever, depends on me getting all of these complicated answers to Bible questions precisely right in the perfect amount of timing, the perfect delivery so that they respond to Jesus with the right set of answers before it's too late. And I'm just afraid that maybe, like the suicide squeeze in baseball, we are getting running ahead of walking. We're getting spelling the word yellow before we've learned to spell the word red. This is a real thing that happened to me. I was homeschooled, I'm learning how to spell. We had this book, I think it was called Why Johnny Still Can't Read, and I am in the section where you're learning three and four letter words. Well, I flipped a few pages ahead and I saw this long word in there, why Johnny still can't read, and I kind of spelled it out, Y-E-L-L-O-W. It's like yellow. I will never learn to spell a word this long. This is what three-letter, four-letter Josh thought he couldn't do. It seemed so complicated. Sometimes this is how we feel about evangelism. There's no way I could ever pull off a play like that. And what we need to do is focus on the fundamentals. When people are practicing for a suicide squeeze, they very rarely actually practice the squeeze play itself. Instead, what they practice is how to run bases, how to throw and catch, throw and catch, throw and catch, throw and catch, how to watch the baseball hit the bat over and over and over. They practice bunting over and over and over until all of these pieces become part of their response, part of muscle memory, part of their, 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 their skill set that they're able to deploy at the time that they need, and then they put it together to do the suicide squeeze. What I'm trying to say is that for Christians sharing the story, there's one fundamental, and that is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus did, is the fundamental it's what we practice, throw and catch, throw and catch, throw and catch. Do you know the gospel? Simple comes before complex. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves and worry about all of these important questions that we're not ready to answer. Think about all of the great bible truths that there are and the great bible questions that aren't the gospel. We might not tell the story because we're afraid we'll be asked about science and evolution. Who wants to get into a debate with your friend at Starbucks, about science and evolution in the Bible. This sounds like the suicide squeeze play. Who wants to get into debates about human sexuality? What does your church do with LGBTQ or about worship? Do you use instruments or don't you? And how do you baptize? And what are all of your doctrines? And what's your eschatology? I mean, what does that even mean? What is your eschatology? What do you... What do you think about dinosaurs in the Bible? And what's the plan of salvation? When does it begin and how many steps are in it? And is it just sola fide or is it saying a sinner's prayer or is it being baptized? All of these things that we might be afraid of having to answer are important Bible questions. I don't wanna minimize that they're important, but they aren't the gospel. The gospel is this power that transforms the story That saves, and it's much simpler than all of that. It is who Jesus is, and it's what Jesus did. Paul in Romans 1 16, when he talks about the power to transform and save a life, doesn't mention all of these other topics. He says the gospel has the power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So for Paul, The gospel is the fundamental. Throw and catch, throw and catch, throw and catch. Do you know the gospel? Are you soaked in it? Are you marinating in it? Do you know the words of Jesus? Do you know the stories about Jesus, the actions of Jesus? We're not going to respond to our friend with something that's so complicated that we're afraid to even get into it. We're not going to respond with something we don't feel like we have mastered. So, practice the fundamentals. What is the gospel of Jesus? Let's rely on the power of the gospel as we tell the story. And next week we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how we then actually share or tell the story. Today we're going to talk about how we identify the gospel and the critical contours of the gospel. So this is it, real simple, real straightforward, identifying it and the contours of the gospel. Let me give you four ways that you can look for what the gospel is. The four ways that you can identify the gospel from other important biblical topics. How do you know which part is the gospel and which part is not the gospel? Uh, Way number one, look for where the Bible uses the word gospel. I know, super simple. Look for where the Bible uses the word gospel. So we've got four books that are called the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. Big clue right there these contain the gospel, sayings of Jesus, actions of Jesus. The gospel is who Jesus is and how Jesus became king. So all of this is contained in these four books. They're called gospel. They say that they're gospel. I mean, it's like a no-brainer. You're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're being soaked in the gospel. But the the Bible will use the word gospel in some other places too. So I'm going to share today in just a minute Uh, some sermons from acts that the apostles gave early in the ministry of the church and a few of paul's letters just these little excerpts where he uses the word gospel and then he says some things that are clearly the story of jesus and what they've done is they've they've kind of pulled out the critical contours of those four big books and they have isolated the critical pieces of the story that make jesus's story different from all other stories And so we'll look at those in just a minute but so the first way you look for the gospel in the bible is when it says this is gospel here's the second way how do you identify the gospel the gospel answers the question who is king or how how did he become king who is king and what did he do to become king so if the bible is talking about jesus who's the king other words might be lord Messiah, which means anointed one, means king. Christ, which is just the Greek word for anointed one, which means king. Lord, Messiah, Christ, king. These are words that are talking about how Jesus has become the authority of all authorities. He's above everything else. That stuff is usually gospel. An easy way to remember this, this is the third way. Okay, here's an easy way to identify what's gospel and what's not. Is this about me or is this about Jesus? If my question or my topic is about Jesus, the King, it's probably gospel. If it has to do with something he said, something he did, it's gospel. If it has to do with me, it's important, but it isn't the gospel because the gospel is always about Jesus. So if I'm asking about my doubts, like the existence of God, can we prove that God exists? I'm not sure, or I am sure that there's a God. If I'm talking about my doubts and my questions, it's important, But it's not the gospel. I might be thinking about how I'm supposed to behave in response to the gospel. Since I've heard about Jesus, what do I do now? How do I live? Those are important, really important. Don't want to undermine that, but it's not the gospel. So the gospel is going to be about Jesus, about the King. It's usually when the Bible uses the word gospel. And here's one more way. This is the fourth way you can identify gospel from other important Bible concerns. The gospel is almost always story, not directions. Story, not instructions. Gospel is story because it is telling what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What happened to Jesus? What happened next to Jesus? Directions are usually going to be your response to the story. So if I am giving you a plan, like I grew up in churches that gave me a plan that you could memorize on your hand, hear the good news uh repent confess sorry believe repent confess and be baptized see it was kind of and then some people would add this extra thumb or whatever and go and don't get off the train like stay on this program for life don't give up on it so i was told these steps these directions hear believe repent confess be baptized now those are not the gospel they're important they're things that we do when we're responding to the gospel which is story. So gospel is going to be called gospel. It's about the King. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. And it's usually story, uh, not directions. Now directions are important, but here's, here's why we start with the fundamental of gospel and not the fundamental of directions. Okay. Why don't we just tell people here, repent, believe, confess, be baptized, or whatever you think the directions are because directions are no help. If you don't know where you're going, If you don't know the story, where you're coming from or where you're going, directions are no help at all. Imagine uh, two different men. One of them is on a train at the train station, firmly on the ground, and he is on the wrong train. He needs to switch vehicles. So he gets directions, and the directions are go through the door, and go all the way down this corridor or whatever. Go through the door and all the way down. He goes, I can remember that. Through the door and all the way down. And he gets off the train, he goes through the door, he goes all the way down here, and he finds what he's looking for. He gets on the other train, the directions worked. A guy on an airplane, same directions. He's on the plane, he reads the directions. Go through the door and all the way down. So he goes through the door and he goes all the way down. And the whole way while he's. He's going all the way down and he's thinking, I've followed these directions perfectly. I am going to get where i meant to be. And then he, you know, he arrives and it is not the kind of arrival he was looking for and that he was expecting. The, The directions by themselves lifted out of their context without regards for the story, without regards for where you're at and where you're going and what the journey is supposed to look like along the way. The directions are no help if you don't know where you're going. So we start with gospel. That's the fundamental and then we know what we're looking for and what we should look like and where we're trying to get. So let's talk about the critical contours. You cannot always share with your friend all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in one go. They're not ready for all of it. You can't remember all of it. It takes a long time. You've been soaking in it, but you can't share it all at once. What are the critical contours? A couple of things about this. First of all, the critical contours are usually the parts of the story that are different than all of the rest of our stories. It's going to be the full and abundant life of Jesus. The way he did miracles and the way he blessed people that cursed him, the way that he is all about making peace with strangers and foreigners and inviting people to his table that didn't usually get along, this full abundant life of Jesus that looks so good and worthwhile is an important contour. The fact that he's betrayed, that he has this unjust death, that he's uh, put to death, crucified, he's murdered from a mock trial. This is a big contour of his life. He is betrayed, he's treated wrong. This is an important element of his story. And then, of course, the resurrection. How could we forget that? The resurrection is what makes Jesus's life and his death different and transformative beyond all of our stories. These make the basic contours of the story. And then the fact that because Jesus has lived this full, abundant God-pleasing life and been raised from the dead, God has exalted him. He's put him at his right hand. He's made him King of all the universe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The fact that Jesus can say, all authority has been given to me. This is a critical contour of the story. So what I want to do now is I want to show you from the Bible, how the preaching of the church always focused on the gospel, and it was always these critical contours of the gospel. This is how they told the story. And we're gonna start in Acts chapter two because this was the scripture reading we had today. And I wanna take a minute right now and just read a few excerpts from Acts two where Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. This is the first time the good news is ever shared uh, after the Holy Spirit comes on the church at the day of Pentecost. If all of that is new to you, go read Acts one and two. you will You'll have this just huge download of information. It'll be like drinking from a fire hydrant and you'll be saying, okay, now that this crazy thing happened with the Holy Spirit falling on people, how did they explain it? What did they, how did they tell this story to their friends? And this is the story Peter tells. I'm going to read uh, from verse 22. He said, Jesus of Nazareth. See how this is about the king, about Jesus. <clears throat> he was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. <clears throat> this is the full life of jesus that he lived with miracles wonders and signs god did these among you through him as you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by god's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death the contours are here the life the death and betrayal he was nailed to the cross but god raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is Acts 2, 22, 23, 24. And then in verse 32, uh, he picks up again and he says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 35, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. So in this first sermon, here is what Peter tells. He tells the story. It's about the king. It's about Jesus. It's not about all of the other questions that people have yet. It's not about all of the issues of the Bible, all of the issues of the church, all the issues of worship. It is about Jesus. The fundamentals. We'll save complicated for when we get to complicated. Right now, it's throw and catch, throw and catch. It's bunt the ball. Fundamentals. We have life, betrayal, death, resurrection, exaltation to be king, the giving of the Holy Spirit, It's all there. Now, every sermon in Acts follows this same kind of pattern. I'm really quickly going to share with you the excerpts of several more sermons, and they all follow the pattern. Peter, again, his second sermon, after they've healed a guy in public, and people are asking, how did this happen? How was this guy healed? What does it mean? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. I'm in Acts 3.13. Acts 3.13. You handed him over to be killed, there's his betrayal and death, and you disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. We've got death and betrayal and resurrection, okay? Peter again in Acts 4, Acts 4 verse 10, when he is on trial and he's summarizing the preaching they have been doing, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus the King, whom you crucified, his death, but God raised from the dead, his resurrection, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. He's become the cornerstone. Salvation is from no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You got death and resurrection and the kingship of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Acts 8:5 says it very very simply. Philip, another disciple. He goes to Samaria, and it just simply says he proclaimed the Messiah. What was the preaching ministry of Philip? It was Jesus. It was the Messiah, the anointed one. Philip talks about the king. This is his preaching ministry, is to talk about Jesus. Peter, when he has the chance to share with a Gentile for the first time. I won't read it all, but it's in Acts chapter 10, the same things, the kingship of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. In front of these Gentiles, he preaches it. Later, Paul will do the same thing when he's on his first missionary journey. Paul in Acts 13, verse 23, from this man's descendants, from he's talking about David, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. This descendant of a king who has the right of kingship is Jesus. So it's about... Jesus, the story of Jesus. And he goes on to talk about the betrayal, the death, and he will talk about the resurrection three times. Three times he will say God raised him from the dead. He raised up Jesus. God raised him from the dead. This is in verses 30 and then verse uh, 33 and then verse 34. So within four verses, three times, Paul will talk about the contour of the resurrection. Now, so many other examples Uh, of this are in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament where the disciples and the apostles, when they preach, they're focused on Jesus. It's about his critical contours of his life. If we were to go look at the letters of Paul, and for Paul, the one contour that stands above the rest becomes the resurrection. That's the really, really unique part. At the end of Acts, he'll talk about the resurrection over and over and over when he's on trial in front of the Gentile governors and the kings. He'll talk about the resurrection over and over. But in Paul's letters, we have these examples where he also tells the story of Jesus this way, the critical contours. 2 Timothy 2 verse eight, so simple. Guys, the fundamentals right here, throw and catch. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus the king, raised from the dead, descended from David this is my gospel. That's the whole bit in 2 Timothy. He says, Jesus the king, raised from the dead, descended from David the king. This is my gospel. Can you see how that's the critical contours? By telling the story of Jesus, he is opening the door with his friends, with the people that he meets, to ask the important questions, to see this full life of Jesus, this hope of new life, and then to say, that is what I've always been looking for. When Paul and Peter and the others share Jesus this way, they are saying the fundamental truth of my life is a man who died for his enemies and did not return their violence for violence, but forgave them. And when they tell this story and then they tell an example of how it happened, like one time they brought this woman in adultery to Jesus and Jesus did this and he said this and he handled it this way. And then this woman received a new chance at life. She had a new license for life. She had freedom again. We go, that is what I'm interested in. We hear of a woman who's been bereaved and been, uh, had trouble with men. She's had all these husbands, and Jesus meets her at a well. She walks away telling everybody, come meet this guy. You've got to meet this guy. We say, I know that that is missing in my life, and I want that story in my life. A person who lives with abundance, a person who has resurrection hope in their story those stories are what Paul and Peter and the others relied on. Jesus, the gospel. So that then when people want it, people would ask, what do I need to do to have that? What do I need to do to have that? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sums up the gospel this way. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. See, how do we identify the gospel in scripture? When it says gospel. Here's one of them. This is the gospel that you received and you've taken your stand on. It's the fundamental. Okay, By this gospel, you are saved. It has power. This is the saving story. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Okay, so if you've got any other stories that you think are the saving stories besides this story, your faith is in vain. This is the fu- fundamental. This is the foundation. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared, which means He was living again in new life. He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and then to many other people. And he says, finally, to me, at the very end, He appeared to me. But look at how He focuses on the contours. This is the saving story. Romans 1, 1-5, this great letter, this famous letter from Paul that many people consider to be the foundational letter of the church. It gives all this great theology. It answers all these complicated questions. Romans is the suicide squeeze play of the New Testament. It's all or nothing. You've got to have all of these very complicated beliefs from the Old Testament and about Jesus really down pat. You've got to have all these skills to be able to read and understand Romans. Paul's arguments are dense and they're complicated. And listen how he opens Romans. He says, I'm Paul a servant of the king, Jesus. Right there is the gospel, the king, Jesus. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, identifying the fundamental story, the gospel he promised beforehand and through the prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, which is the life of Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant from the descendant from David, so the king, David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, the King, our Lord. This is what Paul calls the gospel. So the contours are there. We should be able to read several of these scriptures that I've just mentioned and always know and be reminded of what are the fundamentals? What are the core contours here? What are the, what are the basic skills that you need to be able to tell the story? It's the life of Jesus. It's the betrayal and death of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's that he's king of everything this is the fundamental story now these kind of uh, of storytelling as evangelism helps us because it helps people then see this is the life i've wanted this is the lord that i've wanted this is the power that i've been looking for jesus has hope in spite of derision he has a joy in the place of loss he has peace when there should be despair This is what I need in my life. I know that I am broken because I have no peace, because I have anxiety when I should have peace. I've got more than enough in the bank, and I still worry. I've still got good health now, but I worry about the time when I'll lose it someday. I have time with my spouse and kids. Uh, at home right now, but I feel like all of it is a waste. I'm harried, I'm hurried, I'm overwhelmed. I want the life of Jesus. We go back to the core contours. And motivation makes a difference. Motivation makes a huge difference in how and when we share the story. Okay, we want to keep it simple, we want the fundamentals, but motivation makes a difference. And I think we can all um, kind of see that evangelism or sharing our faith has very different kinds of motivations depending on what you think it means. When you think of evangelism as the suicide squeeze play, your motivation is probably just to get through it. Your motivation is like, I hope I deliver the right answer at the right moment in this complicated sequence of events so that that person embraces Jesus and gets to heaven when they die. Uh, but heres we talked about this before. Directions are only help if you know where you're going. Directions only help if you know why you're traveling where you're trying to get. Uh, take this example of two other passengers. They're both getting on a train. Well, one passenger uh, sits down on the train in a nice, comfortable seat, and he watches mountains and valleys go by. They go through deep valleys. They go through beautiful fields. They, and he keeps asking the conductor of the train, uh, how long until we get there? The conductor, puzzled, looks at him and says, 45 minutes, okay, okay. Again, how long until we get there? He's, all this beautiful countryside has gone by. 20 minutes. How long until we get there? 10 minutes. We're almost there. They arrive at the platform. The, the man rushes out of the train, and to his dismay, he's on the platform where he started. They've gone in a circle. Another passenger on the same train. He takes his seat. They go past mountains. They go through valleys. They go over hills. They see beautiful fields. He never once asked the conductor, Uh, When are we going to get there? You know, when are we getting to the last stop? He just is taking in, soaking in this countryside and this atmosphere. They get to the stop. He slowly walks out of the train. He's back at the platform where they started. The first man is dismayed because he thinks that trains are only meant to get you to the final destination. He thinks trains are a journey. Move me from here to here. The second man understands that some train journeys are scenic loops. They've bought a ticket for a scenic loop. This all comes down to motivation. What is your reason for travel? Okay, makes all the difference in the world about whether you enjoy the journey. What is your reason for sharing the gospel? What is your reason for telling the story? Is it hoping that somebody will just get to heaven when they die? The only thing that matters is the last stop on the line. Or do we understand that there is more during the journey to be embraced and to be seen and to be taken in? One man comes off the train impatient and hurried and not changed for the better. The other one comes off relaxed and at peace and fulfilled through having seen these mountains and valleys. He has been transformed because his motivation has made a difference. The difference here is that when we give this uh, gospel, the stories of Jesus that are like the scenes, the mountains, the valleys, and the fields, this is the story of Jesus and all of its contours. Uh, Then questions come. When people take in the scenic loop, they say, wow, I want to live in a world like that. I want to climb mountains like that. I want to fish in rivers like that. I want to hike through fields like that how do I take in and experience that kind of story? When people hear the story of Jesus in the scriptures, so often they respond with, what do we need to do to be saved? Tell us what to do. And by the time they're ready to ask that question, the kingdom of heaven has come closer than they could have ever imagined. It is right there. They're on the cusp. The directions are not complicated. The directions don't get in the way anymore you don't worry about lists of directions and orders of directions anymore when somebody is begging and they're just saying i want that life that's the story that i want when the motivation is there it is so easy then to tell someone what they can do and what comes next about jesus in their life you don't often hear me preaching the plan of salvation You don't often hear me preaching directions like, do this step, do this step, do this step. Why not? There's a couple simple reasons. One reason is this. The sermons in Acts don't start with directions. No one in Acts is walking up to the barista or the cashier or their friend at lunch table at school and just opening with, do you want to go to heaven when you die instead of hell? Here are three steps to get there today. Nobody is opening that way in the book of Acts. They start with the gospel. They tell the story of Jesus, and then people either ask them or they don't ask them, how do I become a part of that? This sounds wonderful. This is what I've always been looking for. The the next reason that I don't preach plans of salvation like that is because of motivation. I am not motivated to convince you or to teach you that you need to convince other people that God is real, that God is good, that you are bad, that you need saved, follow these steps to get it. This leads to shallow discipleship because the motivation is just to get you off the train at the final stop. This leads to a shallow kind of faith that is just following orders so that you don't burn. I'm not really interested in motivating people with those kind of tactics, with having to convince people, boy, you don't have this. I know you feel like life is going well, but you are on the train to hell. No, when we tell the story of Jesus, which I am motivated to do, to tell the gospel in its words and in its actions, we see what it means that God is relevant. I don't have to convince you, hey, there's a God, When you tell the story of Jesus, you can see that is why a God would be relevant. That is why God matters. Life with Jesus is abundant. I don't have to convince you that your life is lacking. When you see the life of Jesus, you can see that is full life. I want that life. Without him, my life is broken and cracked and thin and wasting away. I need his fullness. What do I need to do to be part of this king and his kingdom and his story? That's the motivation that we're looking for. So today, let's practice the fundamentals. Let's not make this too complicated. The gospel is who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Throw and catch, throw and catch, throw and catch. Read it. Learn the contours. Remember the motivation is to proclaim Jesus and let his story do the work then people might ask us questions and we'll find when they're interested, it's a whole lot easier to answer complicated things because they're motivated too. Let's, let's pray together. I want to pray for you and for us about this. Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, we want to be people who tell the story and who share the good news of Jesus, but so often we make this terribly complicated. We think it's technical and way out of our ability range. We think it's above our pay grade. We think it's like spelling yellow when we're still on red. God, give us again the contours of the gospel that shook the world in the first century. Jesus and his life, his betrayal and death, his resurrection, and his exaltation to being king of all. Help us to know his words, to know his actions, to talk and to sound like him, so that the people that we talk to about the story of Jesus are getting Jesus not doctrines, not complicated theories, not worship styles, but Jesus. Let Him be the power like He was at the beginning to shake and to change our world now. Help us, God, to keep it simple on the gospel of the King. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and together we say, Amen. God bless you all.